Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stood, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken him away, my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said those things to her. This is the word of God. Well, before we come to this passage and continue our study in the, in the Gospel of John, um, let's bow our heads one more time and, uh, and come to God in prayer. Father in heaven, as we in this past week have celebrated uh, the hope of the resurrection and as the weather, at least here in New England, um, seems to have changed to match the season, um, we are filled with gratitude. Um, we are uh, caught short um, by the hope uh, that, that is on offer. Most of us uh, feel as though we haven't yet had time uh, to get our minds around it, not just this year, but, but in all the years. Um, and, that, and that probably is true in a very literal sense, that we simply cannot get our minds around uh, what you have done uh, and the hope uh, that, is, that is on offer um, because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Uh, because Jesus, you live uh, right now at this very moment. You uh, are seated uh, at the right hand of God. Uh, you are interceding for us. Um, we have confessed already several times um, this afternoon that it, is, that it is you who have called us together, um, that it is your spirit uh, whom you promised to send, um, to whom we, we pray and whose name we have invoked. Um, we are dependent on so many of your promises, um, and, and not the least when we come to your word, maybe most of all when we come to your word, because when we come to your word, we uh, encounter uh, your voice, uh, we encounter uh, your word to your people. Um, these are not words uh, that we have thought up uh, for ourselves. Um, these are not words that we would have thought up for ourselves. Uh, one way or another, every, every person here uh, needs to be arrested, needs to be challenged, uh, needs to be encouraged. Um, Father, it's in your word uh, that we encounter uh, among other places, that we encounter the fact that you are a God uh, who gives and says and does things beyond what we can ask or imagine, uh, that you are uh, not the God of our imagination, not a God made in our image, but it is we uh, who are made in yours. It is you who are our creator. Uh, it is you who are uh, our redeemer and our savior. It is you uh, who sustain us um, and will, will, will see us through to the end. Um, Father, thank you that your word uh, makes all of these promises and more. 
Um, thank you, uh, particularly for the promises about your word, um, that it does not go out from you and return without accomplishing its purpose. And so we pray uh, that as we now uh, look at these words um, from uh, the gospel uh, according to John, uh, the disciple that you loved, uh, that we would know your love as well, and that you would accomplish uh, your purposes in, in our hearts, um, that you would use this time to shape us uh, and mold us more and more into the likeness uh, of Jesus, uh, who is our Savior, and who from these very words we can call brother. And that is also an amazing thing. Uh, that is an audacious thing. Um, couldn't possibly have the temerity to refer to Jesus as our brother if he hadn't said it himself. Uh, and so again, uh, we are full of gratitude. Um, please open our eyes, open our ears. Help us to see and to hear um, what you would have us see and hear uh, as we come to your word. I pray, Father, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, when Bradley and I made the decision three years ago uh, to begin preaching through the Gospel of John, we, we always kind of break up our year into fall in the Old Testament, and then from about Christmas to roughly Easter or somewhere after Easter um, uh, in, the, in the spring to be in the Gospels, and then usually the summer we're at a, a New Testament letter. Um, and when we made the decision to preach through the Gospel of John, um, and in particular to, to preach through all of it, neither of us had done this before. Both Bradley and I had preached from the Gospel of John. We had preached kind of thematic series. We had done uh, things on like the, the different I am statements in the Gospel of John. We decided we wanted to go through every word of the Gospel of John, and we have been uh, extremely grateful um, for that decision. I hope you have. Um, I, I would not have known just how much there is to miss uh, in the Gospel of John if you try to pick out the highlights. Uh, it, it has all been so rich. Um, and, and one of the particular joys of the way that, that this has worked out has just been the timing of this spring. Um, we began, uh, I guess, in January of this year, um, just a couple chapters into the Upper Room Discourse. And so we have now spent the entire uh, winter and, and, and the early spring um, in, in, a, in a series of sermons and readings from the Gospel of John that have, have matched the season, right? Um, and, and the good news is that now we get to continue doing that. Um, I've always thought it's, it's, it's really... Um, it's, it's telling and it's appropriate that in the, in the church calendar, you know, there's this season of preparation for Easter called Lent, right? Um, that leads up to Holy Week, leads up to Good Friday. Um, you know, it, it, it culminates with Holy Saturday, the day before Easter. Um, and it lasts six and a half weeks. It's, it's six and a half weeks long. Um, but then Easter, uh, which is also a season, I don't know if you all knew this. It's not just a day. Um, it's, a, it's a whole season. Um, it lasts seven weeks, right? And, and for me, that's almost like God just, just really emphasizing just how much he likes a party, um, just how much he wants us to feast, um, not just to the extent that would match the fast that comes before Easter, but go a little further, 
you know, an extra, an extra few days. Um, for the next, it won't be all seven weeks in Easter the way it works out, but for, for the next several weeks, um, we're going to be wrapping up our study of John uh, in these last few chapters after Jesus is raised. Um, and we get a sustained period, several weeks here, uh, to consider the question that Bradley put in front of us last week, right, on Easter Sunday. The question was, how does the reality of the resurrection impact our lives? How does the fact that we confess um, that Jesus Christ uh, was crucified, that he died, that he was buried, uh, but then he rose on the third day, that he had defeated death, never to taste death, death again, that he is alive right now, that right now at this minute there is a man alive in heaven, um, our risen and ascended Lord and Savior. How does that change our lives? What impact does it have on it? That feels like the kind of question that's both too easy and too hard to answer at the same time, right? I mean, how could it not change everything? Um, but then how could we possibly ever have time uh, to, to work through and to enumerate um, all the things that it, that it changes? Well, we get several weeks uh, to, to, to think about this as we look at these, at these last chapters uh, in, the, in the Gospel of John. Um, last week, we looked at, uh, we saw Mary come to the tomb uh, and just see that the stone had been taken away, and then she left, and she went and she told the disciples. And we saw two of the disciples, uh, Peter and John, uh, come to the tomb and find it empty. Um, but we didn't see Jesus yet. This week, we've moved ahead, and now we're back with Mary. Mary apparently not only went to tell the disciples that she had seen the stone rolled away, um, but she's also come back with them, and she uh, is back uh, at the tomb. And this week, uh, we are going to see the risen Christ uh, for the first time. Mary uh, initially had come to the tomb because she had work to do. Um, if, if you remember, the timing of, of Jesus' crucifixion was such that he died on, on, on Friday, uh, just before the Sabbath. Um, and it said, because it was the Sabbath, um, they couldn't complete the burial preparations. Right? It, was, it was all they did, could do, it was all they had time to do before the Sabbath. Um, for Joseph of, of Arimathea, one of his disciples, um, but in secret, we're told, um, to ask if he could, if he could take the body uh, and, and place it uh, into a tomb. Um, but the body hadn't been anointed. It hadn't been fully prepared. Uh, there was still work to do um, to lay Jesus to rest. And that's what Mary was there to do. Um, right, at the, um, uh, right at the beginning of the, of the chapter, uh, it said that Mary had come to the tomb early um, while it was still dark. Uh, with work to do. And the amazing thing is that having seen the stone rolled away and having seen that the tomb is empty, um, it's now clear uh, that there is no work for her to do. Uh, that as Jesus said, the work is finished. Um, she stoops in. Uh, she sees uh, that the tomb is, is, is empty. Um, it says that she sees two angels um, sitting there, and it, it's kind of remarkable. This is one of the few times in Scripture where someone sees angels 
Um, and the first thing that they say isn't, don't be afraid, right? And she almost doesn't, there's no, there's no, um, there's no exclamation, there's, there's no indication um, that she really remarks anything uh, notable about the fact that there's these two angels um, sitting there. And that just might be an indication of just how deep her distress is, um, her, her grief, her worry, her fear. Um, but they ask her why uh, she is weeping uh, and, and who she's looking for. Um, and her answer is, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have, have laid them. Um, once again, one of the things that is, is really uh, clear in all of the Gospels, um, not least here, here in John, um, is that nobody has any expectation that the resurrection is coming, right? Despite the fact that Jesus said repeatedly um, that he would rise on the third day. Like, nobody knew what to make of that. Um, so that even as it happens, even as they find an empty tomb, no one's first thought is, oh, I know what this is. He told us. He told us he was going to rise on the third day. He has. That, that's, that's no one's first thought. No one has a category uh, into which to put the idea of the resurrection, the idea that one person in the middle of history uh, would be raised from the dead. Uh, was, was just something that they just weren't expecting, they weren't hoping for it. Um, Mark's gospel, uh, famously, uh, at least the older manuscripts, the, the oldest manuscripts in, in Mark's gospel end um, with Mary and some other women looking in the tomb and seeing it's empty, and it just says they walked away full of fear. And that's the end. Right? That's, that's, that, that's, that's all you get. No one, no one knows what to, what to make of this. Um, but then Mary hears a voice behind her. She turned around and she saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Whether that was because her eyes were full of tears um, or whether that was because his appearance uh, was, was so changed, having been raised uh, now in his, in his glorified body. We don't know. We don't know which. Um, she didn't know that it was Jesus. And Jesus asked her kind of the same question, uh, that the angels had, woman, why are you weeping? Uh, who are you looking for? And it says that she supposed him to be the gardener and said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Um, I think it is a beautiful thing um, that she mistakes him for the gardener. Because um, when you think about it, she's not really wrong. Um, She's not really wrong to see Jesus as being the gardener. Uh, in some ways, he is the one uh, that that first garden was always pointing to, right? You can take Pilate's words, behold the man. Behold the man. Here he is, the man, there in the garden doing the work of his father, just the way it was always supposed to be, all things having been put right. It's also a beautiful thing that the moment of recognition comes when he calls her by name, when he says, Mary. And it, it kind of makes you think back to that other garden, right? I mean, there was another uh, who used to walk in the garden by the cool of the day and who called out to his children by name. Um, the scene that we have of that is a, a little bit darker as God calls out, Adam, where are you? 
right? And, and, and instead of a, of, a, of, a, of a scene of joyful recognition and approach, um, Adam is hiding. All right, Adam, where are you? And, and, and Adam says, I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. But when Jesus calls Mary by name, that's when she recognizes him. That's, that's when she knows uh, who this is. It's a great illustration. It's exactly what Jesus was talking about back in chapter 10 when he talked about himself as being the shepherd. Remember that? And one of the things that he said about himself as the shepherd was, my sheep know my voice, uh, and they follow me. Um, and here we see Mary, Mary doing exactly that. There's so much in this, in this passage um, that, that, that fills out what it means to know God. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, said uh, that to know God uh, is eternal life, to know God and to know Jesus, uh, whom, whom God sent. Um, and, 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 and here we see that, that part of knowing God is having that kind of relationship with him where you hear his voice and you can recognize him speaking to you. Um, you can recognize him speaking to you in his word as you read it as, as not just a book full of information, full of great moral advice or, or really interesting stories, but actually the word of God to you. Um, I don't know if you, if you, if you do this. When you, when you spend time reading scripture, um, when you spend time in prayer, and by the way, I would, I would recommend that you put those two things together. Um, that's, that's why we do that on, on Wednesday mornings. We read scripture and we pray and we keep the Bible open um, as, as we pray. But I would really encourage you to read um, scripture asking yourself, where is God speaking to me uh, in, in this passage that I'm looking at? Where is it that he's teaching me something about who he is or teaching me something about who I am? teaching me something about my need for him, or teaching me something about what he has done for me, about his promises and how he's been faithful to them. Um, the word of God is something that addresses each of us personally as much as it addresses us corporately when we're gathered like this. It does, it does both of those things. Um, and it is, it is an essential component of this knowledge of God that Jesus said is the essence of eternal life. Um, that we listen for that voice. One of the things that Bradley says often uh, when, he's, when he's preaching, and, and, I, and I agree with him here, it, one of the, the primary goals uh, that we have when we're preaching, one of the things that we would love most to see during our sermon um, would be people dropping their heads in prayer in the middle of the service and just, and just coming to the point of hearing something where... Maybe it's even hard for you to keep listening, and that's okay, um, because you're being brought to a place where all you can do is worship. All you can do is give thanks. All you can do um, is marvel at who God is and how he's speaking to you in, in, in his word. Um, now, as we, as we keep looking at what Jesus says uh, to Mary, um, we come to something that I think is, is pretty surprising. Um, and leads us to ask some, some important questions. Um, Jesus, after Mary has, has recognized him, she turns to him. Uh, she calls him Rabboni, which means teacher. Um, 
And he says to her, this is at verse 17, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now, here's the question. Why does he not say to Mary, go to my brothers and tell them that I'm alive? Why doesn't he say, go and tell them I'm risen, just like I said I would, right? Third day. Um, They haven't seen him yet. That would seem to be the big news, right? Um, This can seem a little bit like Jesus is kind of burying the lead uh, a a, a little bit in skipping right over the resurrection, right over the fact that he's, he's risen, and instead saying, go and tell them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. Now, there's a couple maybe straightforward ways to understand uh, why he says uh, what he says. On the one hand, um, when he says, don't cling to me, I haven't ascended to the Father yet, um, it might be that Mary was aware of, of things that he had said to the disciples, you know, when he had talked about how he was going to the Father and, and, and how he would, he would ascend. Um, and she might be worried, like, this might be my last chance. Like, you know, Jesus is here, but I don't know for how long. And part of it might just be him reassuring her, um, I'm not going just yet. Uh, and there's, there's going to end up being 40 days uh, that Jesus is going to spend uh, with his disciples, appearing at, at various times. So that might be part of it. It might also just be simply that he's just continuing to speak as he did to his disciples. Um, when we read through the Upper Room Discourse, he spent a lot more time talking about his ascension than about his, his resurrection. Um, the, the, the big thing that he seemed to want to convey as a means of encouraging them um, as they faced that, that last night uh, when he was betrayed um, was the fact that he would go to the Father and that his going to the Father was actually to their advantage. It was a good thing uh, because he would send them the Holy Spirit. Right? And the Spirit would, would be with them, would encourage them, would remind them of everything uh, that, he had, that he had taught them. So he might just be continuing um, to talk in that way. But, but in some way, that just begs the question, why did he talk that way before? Why, why is it that he is speaking so much uh, about the ascension, about what lies beyond the resurrection, instead of what seems to us to be the main event, right? to be the big deal here? It's almost as though, just as the resurrection wouldn't fit into their categories before it happened, so that nobody was hoping for it, nobody was expecting it, it kind of looks like the resurrection still doesn't fit into our categories, uh, even after um, it's it's happened. Um, Jesus' story just won't fit into any of the categories that we want uh, to put it in. Um, Let me tell you... Two ways, I think that's, I think that's true. Um, on the one hand, the resurrection means um, that Jesus' story, the story of, of Jesus, the story of the gospel, refuses to fit into the standard story about the tragic hero. Um, refuses to fit into the, into the kind of story where um, the real point of it is the suffering and the nobility of the suffering. Um, and we can and we can all identify with that. Um, you know, we know these kinds of stories. 
you know, from, from, from myths, from classical Greek and, and, and Roman sources. Um, and Jesus refuses to be that. Um, the quote that I put on the front of the bulletin um, is, is from a theologian named David Bentley Hart, uh, who, has, who has written about this. Let me, let me actually read you a little bit more of that, of that quote. Um, so here's, here's what he says. He says, The solemnity and self-importance of tragedy touches upon a very real kind of pain, a suffering that comes in the wake of shattered expectations or hopes, a sense of rage before the indifference of fate or divine justice, and a final resignation before the unalterable structures of the universe. But the doctrine of the resurrection opens up another and still deeper kind of pain. It requires of faith something even more terrible than submission before the violence of being and acceptance of fate. It forbids faith the consolations of tragic wisdom. It places all hope and all consolation, listen to this, it places all hope and all consolation upon the insane expectation that what is lost will be given back. Not as heroic wisdom, but as the gift it always was. The finality of Christ's death on the cross, which, left to itself, could be so soothing to us in the somber glow of our wisdom and tragedy's pathos, has been unceremoniously undone, and we are suddenly denied the consolations of pity and reverence, resignation and recognition, and are thrown out upon the turbid seas of boundless hope and boundless hunger. A shorter version of that lengthy quote would be from the first season of Ted Lasso, it's the hope that kills you, right? Um, but what he's saying here is that if Jesus had just stayed dead, well, first of all, if Jesus had just stayed dead, none of us would ever have heard of him. That, 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 that should be clear. If Jesus had stayed dead, he would have been one of many, many, many would-be messiahs that were crucified by the Romans that we've never heard of because they stayed dead. There was nothing to write about. But setting that aside, if Jesus had stayed dead and we had his story, we could at least take some consolation in the nobility of this suffering, of, of the sacrifice, of this perfect life uh, that ends in oppression and injustice. Right? I mean, that, that's the kind of story that we can grab onto, and, and we can find some consolation in that. And Jesus refuses that story because he has the audacity to not stay dead, which means that... As Hart says, our faith demands of us a hope that can be a very painful hope, a hope that what was lost will be given back, a hope that, th that things in our own lives that seem dead and done and over and hopeless aren't, that in fact we have a God who can bring life out of death, a, a God who made the entire universe out of nothing, who needs nothing to work with in order to work uh, his miracles of creation and of redemption and of life. Um, where is it that you find yourself coming up against that kind of hope? Um, I would encourage you, if that's, if that's a place where you find yourself, because that kind of hope can be so painful, I mean, Hart used the word terrible. Um, and I think it can be a terrible thing. Don't try to face that by yourself. That is a place where the church 
should be praying alongside of you and with you. Um, we would love to be with you in those places where the things that seem dead uh, are, are the things uh, that you most need to be brought back to life and where resurrection hope uh, is the only hope uh, that you could possibly have left and where you by yourself might not have the strength to grab onto it. Um, that is one way that the resurrection refuses to fit into the categories that we would like to put the story into. Um, but there's one other. There's one other. Um, and for this one, I have to give credit where credit is due um, for, for, for thinking about how to, how to express this. Every Monday, Bradley and I, we get on the phone uh, for about an hour and a half. Um, we pray uh, with each other. We pray for the worship service that just happened. We pray for the worship service that's, that's coming up. Um, wh whoever is preaching the next week you know, kind of says, well, here's what I'm seeing so far. We talk through the passage. We try to, to answer, uh, answer questions or at least identify the ones that we need to work on over the course of the week. Um, if there are questions remaining, sometimes they work their way into the staff meeting on Wednesday. And, and this Wednesday was, was, was one of those. I was asking this question, why is Jesus talking about the ascension and not the resurrection? Um, and it was Mari who said, well, maybe the point is that the resurrection hasn't just put things back to the way they were. It's done more than that. The resurrection has actually started something, not just brought something to an end, a conclusion. It's not just the end of the story. It's the beginning of something. That Jesus, in ascending, is moving beyond just going back to the way things were. Um, I thought that was brilliant. Uh, I think that's exactly right. The resurrected Jesus has not just put things back to the way they were on Thursday night before he was betrayed. Um, Jesus is going to ascend to his Father. As I said before, it's going to mean that there's a man in heaven, our great high priest, interceding for us. Um, he mentions right here in what he says to Mary, one of the most significant ways um, that the resurrection has fundamentally changed things um, and, and not just put them back to the way that they were before the crucifixion. He says... Uh, to Mary, tell my brothers. First of all, he says, tell my brothers, and she knows exactly who he's talking about. Uh, she, she doesn't go to, to his, his physical brothers that we know he had. She goes to the disciples. Um, and so even there, we get a clue of the kind of unity that he, that he has won from this. But, but even more so, he says, go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father to my God and your God. The fact that he says both of those things, my father and your father, allows us to make some distinction that's important, you know, that, that, that the way that Jesus talks about God as his father is different from the way that we talk about him as father. Jesus, Jesus of course, is uh, the son of God by nature, right, because he's fully divine. But because he's also fully human and because he stood in our place, and because he paid the penalty for our sins, we, in putting our faith in him, inherit everything he inherits and, and, and can call ourselves 
the children of God by adoption. And so as much as there's a distinction between the way Jesus talks about God as his father and the way that we address him as father, um, the similarity might be even more important. And this is the first time that Jesus has used these words. This is the first time that Jesus has talked about God uh, not as my father, but as your father. And it's the resurrection that has made this possible. It's the, it's, the, it's the resurrection that doesn't just offer the disciples the chance to know the Father, doesn't just offer them that chance, it's, it's actually made it a reality. It's actually made it a reality that they are children of God, that they address God as Father. Um, the resurrection doesn't just put things back the way that they were means that it's more than just being given a clean slate. It, it, it's, it, it's more than just having all of your sins, you know, up to now washed away and being told, great, you're clean now, try again. Uh, we know what would happen, right? If we were just simply given a clean slate and then told, go ahead, try again, we'd last five minutes, maybe, maybe five seconds. Um, before our hearts would wander uh, yet again. Um, but Jesus, in talking about this unity that we have with him uh, as our brother, that we can address God as our father just the way he does, that we can say, Abba, Father, just the way that he does. What he's talking about there is what we talk about every single week uh, after the confession and the absolution of sins. Right? When, when often the liturgist will say, there is no longer any room for guilty conscience in this room. Because Christ has not only paid for our sins, not only wiped our slates clean, but he's given us his righteousness. He's given us his status. He's made it so that when God looks at us, it's as though he sees Jesus. He sees us in him. What that means because the resurrection doesn't just put things back the way they were, what that means is that you can have real confidence, that you can have real peace, uh, that his work is finished, that his work for you uh, is, is done. There's nothing more to do. And that really does change everything. Um, that really does change everything about the way you approach life, about the way you approach work, the way you approach relationships, the way you approach uh, your hopes, dreams, fears. Um, and for us, as a people, um, it changes the way we approach this table, right? Um, if it weren't for this, uh, we would approach this table um, as a means of working, for our salvation, that, that maybe if we do this right, uh, God will accept us. But the resurrection of Jesus means that that's been flipped completely on its head, that because we are accepted in him, because that is sure, because it is done, we can come to this table as a celebration, um, as a feast, uh, as a foretaste of the wedding feast of the Lamb that's to come. Um, we're going to get to come uh, to this table now, so before we do that, let's pray.